Welcome to Elite Team Talks, the podcast that simplifies the universal principles underpinning the world's most successful teams. I'm Henry Cheatham, founder of Elite Human Solutions. Join me as we venture into the minds of individuals who have created, led, researched, or been a part of history's most successful teams, from World Cup winning coaches to Special Forces leaders and the minds of Google. We're committed to presenting the most diverse array of thought leaders ever assembled. Through the stories and wisdom of our guests, we filter the noise, extract key insights, and deliver clear, actionable steps for you to build industry-leading teams and culture within your organization. Welcome to Elite Team Talks. Hi, everyone, and welcome. Today, our very first guest is Dr. Scott Draw. Over the last 20 years, Scott has led human performance departments across some of the most elite organizations in the world. He was head of research and innovation for Team GB over five Olympic cycles, led England Rugby's player development pathway, headed up Team Sky's performance hub with my favorite job title, Imagineer, in the Tour de France, and now as director of sport at Millfield is building a team responsible for inspiring a generation at the leading sports school in the country. Over the last two decades, Scott's roles in research and innovation required him to look outside the traditional confines of sport, and much like this podcast, involved him bringing together some of the greatest thinkers across sport, science, business and the arts to discover new breakthroughs and explore human potential from different perspectives. He holds a PhD in sports science, has published 36 research papers, but most importantly, he manages to maintain the same childlike curiosity and energy for innovation and unlocking talent as he did 20 years ago. In today's episode, we discuss innovation and its precursors, curiosity and creativity. Scott explains his journey, the startup-like atmosphere when he joined Team Sky and what he attributes his high level of curiosity to. We talk about how in the infinite game of business, where you can't actually win or lose, but simply get ahead or fall behind the competition, the goal is actually to out-innovate the competition. And Scott explains the two to three most crucial components for companies and teams to achieve this. You can expect to walk away understanding the essential components for innovation, how to do it better than your competition, how to reframe risk for next level innovation, and a sneak peek into the inner workings of British Cycling's famous secret squirrel club. As always, if you enjoy the episode, please like, review, rate and subscribe the podcast. Most importantly, thank you as always for watching and listening. This podcast was created for you and I hope you enjoy the episode. Cool. All right, so we're recording. so welcome, Scott. Thank you very much for joining us today. Um, my pleasure. Cool. Would you like to give uh, the viewers a little bit of uh, an understanding of who you are and your background? Uh, yeah, so um, as you said, my name's Scott Draw. I, I'm currently Director of Sport at Millfield School. Um, Millfield School is probably the UK's leading education environment for youth sport. Um, uh, I came here five years ago now, actually, after probably a career working in high performance. And that really started um, um, in the early 2000s when I was part of Team GB through UK Sport, really leading up research innovation for uh, 13 years. And that was across six summer and winter Olympic and Paralympic sports, which is great. Uh, and that was a very fast moving entrepreneurial time to be involved in sport, probably in that environment. 
Um, I then went to work in uh, international sport with England rugby, which is a great experience. Um, very different insight in terms of a national governing body and structure and really responsibility was a cross player development. And probably that's where I got my passion for talent, talent development and a real understanding of that. Um, I then got persuaded to go back and operate in a role uh, with Team Sky and Sky, which was a really came from the CEO of Sky at the time, a guy called Jeremy Darrock and Sir Dave Brailsford, who everyone's pretty familiar. And I knew Dave through my work in Olympic sport, um, came across to really, I guess, explore Sky making this big investment in professional cycling. How could they make more value of that? Um, and it was really about connecting sport education, art, creatives, um, business, all of those elements of it to find what the what are the things that make most in, most interest. Of course, when I was in that environment, I'd get called on a bit to sort of help the team because of my background. Um, and in the end, I got completely immersed into that space. Um, I came to here serendipity, really. Things played themselves out in life. Um, I was getting drawn more and more into the team, but uh, family circumstances were changing. Some were transitioning to school and this opportunity came up and I wasn't looking. And I sort of stepped into the unknown. Um, and it's been a fascinating understanding experience of another part of the pathway and another part where sport plays a significant part of young people's lives and particularly in the independent sector so um i guess really diverse range of experiences in sport diverse range of sports um and always been more technically orientated so scientist by trade but involved in science med tech engineering and that's still where my passion is really the opportunity to have autonomy to explore um to change things to try things you know that that type of type of environments one that I personally feel I thriving and the Milford often provides that but in a very different context thank you I mean where do we start there's obviously so many different experiences there and, and areas that we could delve into um you've held positions like head of research and innovation at UK sport for five Olympic cycles head of the performance hub and I remember your job title, Imagineer, which still makes me smile at Team Sky with Tour de France. And I knew you were someone that I'd uh, have some interesting chats with. And now ultimately responsible for building a team for inspiring a generation at one of the highest performing schools in the country. You like innovation and discovery, don't you? Yeah. Um, yeah. And actually, I had a, another recent podcast about I was trying to understand where that come from, actually. Um, what the, and I, I wish I knew there isn't a particular moment um but maybe it's just the nature that um my brain never rests you know and I like spinning lots of plates invariably so and I like new um and I think when the early stages of the development of the Olympic system so before like what was the English Institute of Sport now called UK Sports Institute when before any of that existed I came into an early role where there was a small central team there supporting Olympic sports and it was like being in a startup is the best way of describing it. Um, huge amount of autonomy, huge opportunity with the resources just to go and explore. And, you know, very young, I just finished my PhD. My real skills are in analytics, uh, statistics, because my PhD was epidemiological based. Um, and you're just immersed into this world that there were no constraints and no restrictions. So you sort of had to find and navigate your way through very uncertain territory. And that's where I'm really comfortable in that gray space. Um, I love uncertainty. I still like, remember going in my role when I went across the sky and team sky, not having a job description because um, you had to figure out what you needed to do. So like those are the things that I'm really uncomfortable with. So it may be just natural curiosity 
and the natural desire to try things and understand and that may be the sort of scientists in space and i've been really fortunate to be environments that allow me to do that so when you're constantly testing your curiosity for real in real life environments you learn very very quickly um and i guess that's and you get some successes and you get a number of things that don't work as well i won't call them failures they're the lessons that you learn in that 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 environment so yeah, I don't know whether it's just it came through my education environment um, or where circumstances and environments ultimately provided me the opportunity to go and explore in that space. So, yeah, I mean, I, I love the opportunity to do the new. I get bored with the standard stuff, you know, because I'm constantly want to push forward and I'm very restless in that in that space. So it may be some personality characteristics that drive that. Um, but I'm insatiably curious absolute desire to understand and get to the crux of why why things are like they are and if not can we do them much better yeah and it seems to be a commonality between those who innovate and those who challenge status quo to have that predeterminant and i'm sure there'll be many listeners today wanting to understand how they can create that level of almost childlike curiosity and i think it would be something to, that we could delve into later within the podcast. It would be nice to discuss. But when was it that you first noticed you were more curious than others? Um, I, I guess I wouldn't necessarily say I was more curious than others because I think the, the environment that it came up through education, um, uh, you know, scientists, I think, are naturally curious in some senses, but it's probably more about where you're, level of risk taking will take you um so it's probably a willingness to genuinely want to really go into spaces that you don't understand and that with that comes a self-awareness around where your knowledge limitations are and then your ability to work with others so if you're crossing into fields that you're truly not an expert you've got to be able to, there's a, a skill to be able to connect with those individuals and then to extract information from them that helps the problems you're trying to solve so there's a there's a little bit about that so it's but it's it's probably you know you you talk about the environment you're in i've been very fortunate to be work with mentors or leaders who give given that freedom to go and do things um so it's not just theoretical it's real um and so i've been really fortunate when when i think about that that my my desire to try to understand my desire to want to do new and be around individuals that allow that to happen with some level of constraint and support and is is has been the things that have enabled that to flourish but i think the reality of performance sport and particularly high performance at the end i just think it's a fundamental to be able to move forward um and to be able to do that more at uh like when you're up in the helicopter i think it's really easy to get caught up in what i call the inch wide mile deep so you may be a real specialist in one area and for you, your curiosity is just taking you deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper. My sense is that's not where you make the breakthroughs or genuinely challenge convention. I think it's your ability to come out of that very narrow channel and get above it and see actually there's another channel that's quite interconnected that may take me into a slightly different place. And I think that's one of the challenge, that's one of the skills I've been able to do that. Um, and you often see people that that make those breakthroughs or really try to do different things of those that can get up into the helicopter and you're genuinely able to feel comfortable operating in a space of uncertainty. No, it's fascinating. And it, it resonates with that phrase 
that we've probably all heard you can't solve a problem with the same thinking that created it and being able to have the diverse perspectives within a team but also the empathy I guess within yourself to reframe what that problem is and and from that to be able to generate those innovative solutions yeah absolutely um I'm just trying to think of examples. There's a there's a great story. I can. Um, I was really fortunate in my early years to be part of a project team that became known now known as the Secret Squirrel Club. It stemmed out of British Cycling at the time. Um, I still remember uh, Chris Bourbon, you know, um, an, an amazing legend and hero in terms of British sport. He was sort of sharing a story at the time. We were doing lots of aerodynamic testing on race suits and various aspects of it, and he recalled this story where he was sat in bed with his wife and he's discussing the work that's going on and his wife you know she's super smart in any sense just asking um asking questions about whether we'd ever to him whether they'd ever tested these race suits when they were wet and you're like thinking you're sat there thinking through yeah we missed a bloody obvious thing haven't we so <laughs> everyone's sweating when they often go and race after a big warm-up and we've been doing all this testing understanding around fabrics and we haven't done them we're under the now that seems a simple thing, isn't it? But you've got a non-expert, if the way I describe it, is listening to some stories being told and there's a very different perspective and lens on it and has suddenly asked a question, a very curious question, well, why have you never done that? And you're like, actually, I don't know why we haven't. Um, and that led us down some particular pathways to explore fabrics, textiles, aerodynamic performance and very different constraints as well. So like, it didn't give us a breakthrough moment, but what it did is open a door. And it was then about us pursuing that door and it led us down a different pathway um, and some different gains in different different directions. So there's really, I think, there's a guy called Scott Barry Kaufman um, who's look, he studies giftedness is the way he's crazy, he's an American psychologist. He studied curiosity and creativity and one of the biggest determinants of somebody's ability to be creative is their, um, I guess they call it open-mindedness, but it's the ability to engage in other other spaces. You know, there's some great research that shows if you look at some of the top scientists in the world, what you typically would see is people that are got royal fellows, for example, in the Royal Society, will typically have more hobbies and avocations than anybody else. So they go to spaces and do other things out their normal space. And so they're suddenly connecting these dots in different worlds. And they've basically got more experiences that they can call on when they're faced with new challenges and problems and opportunities. And, and so that's it. You've got to create these environments and opportunities with that and realize you don't have all the answers. You know, you look at the amount of stuff and in new information now that's available. You cannot know it. So your ability to create a network of different experiences to go to different places means you have a lot more to call on. And then it's your job about putting those jigsaws together. So that sort of the, the one I just shared about Chris is just an example of you've got to allow other people in your space who will view things from a different perspective and they'll ask questions. So you've got to be comfortable with being able to listen to that and think, no, that's not a silly question. That's got that's got real validity. Um, and then it's about having these connections and networks and frameworks and experiences that you can call. Basically, you need the toolbox that's so bloody big and wide and diverse it can take you to spaces. So I think those are the some of the characteristics of things that enable you to be creative and in, innovative and creative and innovation slightly different. That, that's another matter in its sense. But I think that was one of the things that um, 
I immerse myself in, you know, certainly there's all early years in Olympic space. I just spent a lot of time going to different universities, different organizations, learning different things. And suddenly a challenge or opportunity arises and it, you're able to connect the dots. Um, you know, I guess in my early career, I was probably more like a conductor of an orchestra is the best way of describing it. Your orchestra was this team of experts from many different spaces. It could be military, it could be aerospace, it could be sports science, it could be physiology, it could be bi like people in a room, that's your orchestra and your audience is the sport saying, mm, we've, we've observed all these things. We don't quite know what to do. And our job was try to build that orchestra to help test that idea that they'd seen or help answer questions they posed. Um, and, and that's the way it sort of evolved. So there's lots in that conversation that we've sort of had, but I think the essence of it is we talk about being open-minded, but be curious, bring people into your environment who may not understand it. I've got lots of examples where that was hugely beneficial but expose yourself to as many different experiences as you can outside of your normal sphere of interest um, because you never know what that may lead to. Um, and, and I think those are some of the critical ingredients I'd always encourage anyone who wants to develop themselves as an individual. Brilliant. The two key things that I've taken away from that is diversity of thought and experience and creating a culture with psychological safety to challenge perspectives and and ways of thinking and it sounds like the environments you've worked in had both of those things in abundance so it's natural isn't it that you're going to innovate and, and be creative from those yeah and maybe I, I naturally find those spaces in mm. some ways as well um I don't know but certainly in the early stages of my life and career in Olympic sport it, because it wasn't a startup mentality you know um and things were still emerging it was that speedboat is the way I describe it, as opposed to being a super tanker. Like once a sporting system or NGB gets so big, there's so many layers to decision making because, you know, because of compliance, because of regulation, because of all, all of those things. Whenever ever in any organization, it's how can you retain that speedboat mentality that enables you to go and explore and be entrepreneurial, but within the framework that you're operating within. Um, and so I think that that is critical. And of course, the whole startup sector has emerged massively in the past 10, 15 years as well. So you tend to be seeing a lot of that in that space. But the best way of sort of describing it, so maybe I naturally went to those environments. The time with Team Sky and Ineos was exactly the same. The staff in that environment were constantly knew they had to progress and had to move forward. And so it was an inherent characteristic of that environment. It was expected of you to, to try to constantly move things forward. Um, and it was always about the pace of change that you could go. Yeah, it sounds definitely like you found your sweet spot. And it's a, a colleague of mine previously, James King, who nicely sums that up. But he says the sweet spot is where your interests, values and skills intersect. And when you're in it, the sky is the limit. And from what it sounds like, you had those three things within those environments that you were. Yeah. And equally, when you're not in it, it does in environments like that. Um, and I'd probably describe my time at England rugby was a bit like that. And equally being in an education environment, it helps you value what those are. But when you, one of the big things about innovation in general is when you put constraints in, you have to think differently how to do things. Um, so you appreciate what you had, but then also uh, when you put a constraint in it, you have to operate in a very different way. 
or those were those were probably much more open if i look at my olympic time and time in deep sky much more open in um autonomous and my time in independent education versus england rugby not as much they were still innovative in their own way because you know they were they were less resources more resourceful was a you know a great thing so when you put a constraint in because of some of those systems you've got to operate a very different way um but i still think one of the most critical factors around all of that space is about your speed and rate of operation once you're there so um there is a great quote from a guy called arius de use I, I call on it a lot he was you know part of big petrochemical petrol chemical company he says the only sustainable competitive advantage you can maintain is to learn faster than the opposition so you've got to create those opportunities where if you have an idea you can test it and learn from it quite quickly um and so there's a systematic nature to that so it's a lot about that that rate of learning i think is is really important in those environments yeah I mean, it reminds me of a mental model that i've heard of called the red queen effect i don't know if you've come across it before oh explain it's taken actually from Alice in Wonderland, believe it or not, where in essence, the Red Queen explains how the faster everyone else is running, the faster you have to run just to stay in the same place. Right. But there's obviously a limit to how fast teams and companies can run and how long they can run at maximum pace for. And really, the only way of running faster is to become more efficient through innovation. And you mm -hmm. could use the analogy of running itself and innovation having brought us the bicycle, the car, airplanes, etc. But for a lot of companies and teams, the level of competition and, and the the level of innovation now with globalization, with access to really diverse frameworks and perspectives is at a whole nother level, you know, before you even bring in technology and AI. Um, and we've all heard the quote, it's not the strongest or most intelligent that survives, but the most adaptable to change. I guess, how could you identify whether you're doing this well, whether you are learning as quickly as possible? Do you have to wait to see whether you get ahead or fall behind? Or are there key indicators that you can track and, and test? Um, yeah, I mean, um, yes, it's a really good question. I'm going to think it through. Um, I've been really fortunate so even in my time here, I still get involved in, in various projects in the high performance space. Um, and there's some things that have often resonated with me around because some sports, some organizations are more highly resourced, money often doesn't become a rate limiting step for them. They, But um, I think that the challenge that that means is they end up getting drawn into a rabbit hole. Does that make sense? So they just get end up deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper into the same problem or same challenge you're trying to solve the same opportunity. Um, so I, I uh, so where am I going to, so, so if you, if I went into an organization to observe around practice, um, get an idea of what challenges they're trying to solve and how they're going about it, a lot about their process of innovation, if I call it that, and the environment will tell me a huge amount about them. There's a sort of checklist of stuff as simple as it is, of behaviors, of leadership styles, of way budgets are resourced, like about just the pace and energy in a space that would tell you a little bit about an environment without making it overly complicated. Um, and you you would, in a simple perspective, be able to see that because you, it, it's just documented well enough. You know, like as soon as you understand how that works and how that or doesn't work, it tell you everything about an environment. 
So I, just because I've been really fortunate to be in so many spaces, I've got this sort of checklist I could go in that would tell me a huge amount about it. Um, so, yeah, and, and you just look at them. It would tell you relatively quickly by just being, that they call the research process appreciative inquiry, just observing an ethnographer. If I went into an environment like that, it would tell me a huge amount about it. If there's anything I've observed in the past 10 years is, those organizations that are super well resourced are often not the most innovative. They just ended up going down this rabbit hole. Their ability to get out of it and look big picture um, and just to see whether the emerging opportunities are and then go for them, just like that, that type of thinking isn't there. So it just, yeah, I've never thought of it that way, but I, I have got these checklists that I would, would go in and I sort of, in presentations I'd give, I can sort of describe some of the characteristics of innovative environments and you know ultimately you'll just see it in the product because it's that that type of thinking you know and you'll see it in the way people share their stories about projects they're involved in about what they're learning there's a real energy and buzz around the place really so i haven't characterized it officially but i could do um and there's this to say there's, there's a checklist of things around the leadership style the autonomy people would have around the types of projects that they're involved in, whether it's in their area of discipline or not. It's about the external people they engage with in their environment. Um, and it, like there's, a, there's a list of things and you could scale it from nothing to massive and you could end up with a little ranking in some ways around what you what you believe would characterize that type of space. Um, so I haven't answered your question particularly, but there's it, there's no one thing, of course but it starts from the top around the leadership environment, the follower, follower type leader, leader model in some respects. And then just the other people, the spaces they go to, the experiences of their staff would have, like there's so much in it that you'd get a really good feel of some of those characteristics. Mm. And for the viewers and listeners who maybe don't have your backgrounds across a really diverse range of fields and a deep understanding of, how to uh, identify innovation done well and not just to put you on the spot what's one or two or three potentially of that list or things on that list would you say would be the first things that you'd look at whether it's leadership whether it's processes yeah i, I mean if i just focus on an individual um I would look at their curiosity and by that, you know, I could go into somebody if they're a or not on social media, it doesn't have to be that, but it's one format of where there's available information. Are they on it? And let's look at their followers. So recently you can go in and characterize the breadth and depth of the, the type of people that they follow. Um, so that would be one way of just assessing somebody's breadth of experiences and knowledge and insight. You know, if you're a physiologist and all the people you follow are physiologists, you know, I'd be saying, Mum, I'm not so sure about that. So that would be one thing. Um, and that's just an example of one way that you could assess it in some senses. Um, I'd want to know about their experiences. I want to know where they've been in the past five years, who they've met, what events, like just what's the breadth that they have as opposed to depth. There's always a little bit of depth to it. The second thing is I want to know what they've actually done. So let's assume you're curious. It's then your willingness to go and experiment. I, I, I want to see your portfolio. Describe to me the the ideas you've had from your curiosity and the ones that you've managed to test and take forward. That doesn't necessarily mean running a scientific experiment, but have you tried things, got some feedback? Like, so there's a little bit of that. 
And then I guess the third element of that will be about the reflection and coaching element of it. So you've done all that. Have you shared your story? Have you taken any of the feedback for it? And when, where has it led? So what path has it taken you? So I think those are the three things probably that I could look and you could measure it if you wanted to. Um, but that's where that's a, that's a start point for you. That's brilliant. And for maybe companies or teams who already have an established uh, lineup, they have people in there already, and they're ultimately just looking to, say, enhance their processes or leadership approach to innovate better. Applying the same two or three principles or key performance indicators to that, what would you say those were? Um, so at an organizational level, I guess the the level of risk taken in an organization is inherently important. But I think knowing that the leadership model is more leader leader, if that makes sense. So individuals have the autonomy in their roles, whether that's actually written into a job description or they genuinely have the opportunity to do new things and go new places and all those things will will be a critical one. So there's there's a decision making from the top that we support that and everyone is an innovator in some senses. Um, because other organizations may, and certainly in my time, have a separate function that's called research innovation. Um, and there's that balance point around, is it one or the other? Yeah, I think you need a bit of both. That's a reality. But I, I worked in a team whose sole job was to do research innovation. Um, and we're working with individuals in sport who are just very operational. So if you were the coach who's, you know, and an athlete who are just doing the day-to-day -day job, when will they genuinely get time to do that? I mean, they're probably innovating every day the way they coach, but if they have a much bigger question, they may need to work with others to do it. So there's there's great an idea of mentality about how you frame your workforce, the autonomy they have, all those elements of it, that's important. It's then whether you back it with resources, but also whether you then create an environment where um, sharing those stories is an acceptable part of how you function and operate. You know, so you celebrate, I won't call them failures, but you celebrate the experiments you've been on and what you learned from it as much as possible. And there's some brilliant management research, research that shows that's a really good predictor of future performance. Um, there's a there's a, a great analogy, not an analogy, I, um, I forget who this is, so I can't reference them, but I heard from somebody, fail is your first attempt in learning. Um, so really your willingness to push open to those doors and what you reflect from it. So I think you can do that at an organizational level as well as individual level. Um, so it's similar, but it just looks different when you look at it from an organizational perspective. Um, and as you say, I think the key bit around that is how do you frame a research innovation function? Is it part of everyone's job or is it separate? A lot depends on the maturity of the organization for sure, the system that you have, but I think you need a bit of both depending on what you're trying to do. Brilliant. And moving on to the five Olympic games that you had with Team GP. A lot of people listening to this will work in the corporate sector and ultimately they're playing an infinite game. There isn't an Olympics every four years where they decide whether they were successful, whether they won or they lost. So if you can't win or lose and you can only fall or get behind, what could anyone listening today learn from the work you did in continually evolving and innovating Team GB over those five Olympic Games? And what were the two biggest learnings you took away from it? Um, yeah, I mean, first of all, you're right in that, um, you know, Olympic Games, the date doesn't move. 
And if you've got a particular event on a particular day, it's sort of set. So that helps. That frames the problem really, really well. Um, and if you then map out an Olympic period, the way I sort of think about it, um, when you come out of the Olympic period, the year after the Games is pretty much down year. There's often staff changes and lots of those elements of it. And, you know, major world champs are not so meaningful in that sense. That And yes, you need to perform and it's a great opportunity for young athletes to get exposure to all of those things. But if you're to quantify, probably, that when you're in competition time, it's really hard to take on new things. Just the focus is logistics and delivery and all those things. But if you're to quantify the time you have to be innovative, if I call it that, it's it's really at most about 18 months. Because pre-Olympic year, you're bending things down. You're in Olympic qualifications. You don't want to be changing too much. So if you take a, assume for every year you're six months competing, a competing cycle, and six months you get a chance of training, that's where you can really move things on. If you had to quantify that, you've got this 12, 18-month window. Um, so I guess one of the key lessons from all of that is I do think you need to – one of the constraints is time. The other is money. I think you need to use the principle of constraints to help people be innovative. Um, and a, there's a brilliant video um, about, oh God, I'm just trying to think of the guy, um, Dave Snowden. He does a lot around chaos um, and systems thinking. He talks around um, a mission in NASA, um, which is to do with the Tom Hanks movie. It's a brilliant video. He just talks about this things, you know, it's going to get to a point where everyone's going to die. And you've got all the engineers back in NASA just saying, what's in the spaceship? We've got all these things to try and solve the problem. So what's happened there? There are some constraints around pressure, time. There's a significant impact in terms of what's happening. So if you look at those environments where there are constraints, it tells you a little bit around that. So I think if you want to not force it, you need to create environments where there are some constraints that will challenge people's thinking to move on. So in an Olympic space, it is time. You just got to do it, and you got to deliver something. So, like often, you're looking for the perfect solution. The reality is never perfect. You keep pushing until a point where you got to ease off and just deliver it. So, I think that would be one of the key things around around all of that. You have to constrain things, which often can force people to make decisions and move forward. Um, so that be that would definitely be a big lesson, and say so lots of examples of how that works. Uh, the, the second big lesson for everybody and probably those experiencing the Olympics, um, I, I guess I learned a huge amount around, I will call it the psychology of diversion and deception. Um, what happens when you are pushing forward and the opposition become, that becomes very noticeable. So we had, we were fortunate, rules and regs have changed now to be able to drop new things at a major Olympic Games um, and it would get noticed. And actually, when you sort of think back and reflect on that, your ability to do that pissed a lot of people off. Uh, but it also meant uh, they weren't focused on their own job. They're looking at you. What are you doing? Why have they done that? Why they hit like all of that stuff? So I guess the second one to take people on, I think you've got to know what good looks like and often the reflection that I had in that time, good would look like when people hated you in some senses, like the, it, there would always something people would be focusing on you. You would be changing the narrative and language about in that sport. And that's a really good indicator that you're there. Does that make sense? Like you are, you, there's, in, and there's so much in history. There's so many examples in the past uh, where that's happened. You know, if I look at uh, Eliud Kipchoge's two-hour record, everyone's talking about the shoes, like not about the other stuff that went on. So it creates these stories 
where people are focusing on you and not on themselves. In some ways, that's a, a good marker, an indicator that you're on the edges and you're pushing ahead of other people. Mm. Imitation is the greatest form of flattery, so it makes total sense. Cool. Let's take a break for five minutes or so, and we'll pick up after discussing your time with Team Sky in the Tour de France and Millfield, if you're Great. happy with that. So I think you'll agree there's some pretty brilliant takeaways from today's episode with Scott. It was a fascinating chat. I myself learned a huge amount from chatting with him, and hopefully you had some nice insights too. So in regards to what we actually talked about, what I like to do is compare it back to what I call the 5P framework. Purpose, people, problem, process, and proof. Just to create more clarity around the themes that we're discussing and the clear action points that you can take away. So the top key three themes that I saw was around innovative people, innovative processes, and innovative proof. So from an innovative people standpoint, well, why is this important? So research shows actually diverse teams are nearly twice as innovative. And in essence, what we were discussing and what Scott was explaining was that on an individual level, hiring people with experience and curiosity across a diverse range of topics, people with the courage to lean into risk and people with the desire to be collaborative was really crucial. On a team and company level, Scott explained that diversity of thought and experience both from within and from bringing people outside the organization in was really crucial. From a process standpoint, it's really important that we take a process that allows us to be innovative. Three things that Scott mentioned were a shared leader-leader style of leadership, creating psychological safety and therefore the freedom to explore, lean into risk and embrace uncertainty within teams and the organization. And then also applying constraints, as we know from the research, constraints-led approaches to innovation actually supercharge innovation by limiting resources and requiring people to get more creative with these problems and solutions. So the third theme, innovative proof, we discussed why proactively identifying what innovation looks like for your people, teams and organisations is really crucial and then actually measuring this longitudinally. And why is this important? Well, the research shows that companies which focus on stakeholders, such as your people, from them and what they need, rather than shareholders, actually grow twice as quick. So the action points that I took away from this were number one, hire people with diverse experiences and test for curiosity, courage, and a desire to collaborate in your screening process. Number two, Communicate constraints and then provide your teams with the autonomy and freedom to explore, take risks and actually celebrate learning from failure. And number three, create a universal understanding of what innovation looks like and build this into daily communication, into performance strategies and performance reviews. So hopefully that summarised what we spoke about. Really encourage you to apply any insights that you have today in your own settings to take on these action points, discuss them with your peers and see whether you can create a more innovative company. If you enjoyed today's podcast, please subscribe, leave a review or share it with others. In the next episode, Scott and I will discuss the similarities between high pressure boardrooms and preparing for the Tour de France with Scott explaining what he believes to be the essential components for teams to not just survive, but actually thrive under pressure. 
Scott breaks down the misconceptions around the phrase marginal gains and instead explains how their focus was on having an extremely in-depth understanding of what it takes to win alongside a highly adaptable plan as no plan survives first contact. He also speaks about what it takes to repeatedly perform at the highest level and how it's both you, the individual's responsibility and the organisation's to own this. To finish off, Scott explains what we as adults could learn from children and how to rediscover your innate curiosity within. You can expect to walk away from the next episode with an understanding of how to adapt and evolve quicker than the competition, what it was actually like preparing for the highest pressure race in the world, how to create a deep sense of connection in your company and how to repeatedly perform at your best, both for you and your team. Thank you as always to you, our viewers and listeners for watching today's episodes and for your support. I hope you enjoyed it and I'm looking forward to seeing you very soon.